Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, Mets fans, and welcome to the Happy Recap Radio Show for this March 12, 2017. I'm JB, along for the ride. EJ is out with a case of the pukes, and uh, Ryan, I believe, is hanging out with some uh, royal wrestlers, so uh, he's unable to join us today. But uh, glad to have each and every one of you along with us for the ride. Joining me in a couple minutes, uh, meet Mets beat reporter extraordinaire Rich Catino. Certainly the veteran on the bench and always a great pleasure to talk to uh, Rich Catino is going to be joining us. And he's got a brand new book coming out called Press Box Revolution. We're going to talk a little bit about that, but we'll focus on that later in the month or next month, the one that comes out. Because I want to spend an entire show on that book because it absolutely deserves it. Uh, with you know, 30 plus years on the beat, Rich Catino has a, quite the story to tell. A lot of observations on uh, sports media, specifically sports media in New York. And we certainly want to dedicate an entire show to that. But we'll definitely talk about that this week. Of course, spring training continues. The World Baseball Classic continues with uh, quite a few Mets participating uh, throughout the Mets uh, Major League and Minor League rosters. And, um, you know, I, I have to tell you, one thing I, I've discovered so far is the usually very ignorable World Baseball Classic is quickly becoming must-see baseball. The intensity, the passion, and the... Um, excitement of these ball games is palpable and um, something I'd never thought I'd see along with something I really thought I'd never see is a full stadium of excited fans in Miami. Uh, it took a USA Dominican Republic game to make it happen, but certainly uh, that was the case last night as the U S dropped that game uh, after a five, nothing lead. But uh, you know, what an exciting game. There's certainly exciting games continuing to go on um, as, as this show is live. I'm tracking the, uh, the uh, Dominican Republic and Colombia. And uh, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about this game uh, coming up because of the fact that uh, they utilize the, uh, the rules where um, you put runners on to start the 11th inning. And I think that that's going to be uh, something that, uh, you know, that has been proposed for major league baseball by Rob Manfred to speed the game up and uh, specifically extra innings. Uh, but uh, and there's a possibility that that may be tested in the minor leagues next season. But uh, to me, I'm going to tell you right now, it feels like the ultimate buzzkill. Um, it just actually absolutely kills a game stone dead to throw a, a, you know, runners out there with nobody on, nobody out, and uh, let those guys earn it. You know, Extra innings is all about the beauty of the strategy, all about the beauty of reduced rosters and running out of players and all the different things that it takes to try and win one of those scrappy, long games. And sure, you know what? It's not going to be the most exciting thing for some people, but for the rest of us and those of us who appreciate some of the tradition, it's going to be pretty cool. On the Mets front, uh, Mets lose today to the Tigers um, and drop to 8-9-1 and one on the spring, and I always hate those number ones at the end there because, uh, by golly, I hate ties. I'll be honest, I do. But the um, bullpen continues to look a bit shaky, with the exception of uh, our good friend Josh Smoker, uh, we'll talk to Rich Catino about that. Certainly want to get his take. Obviously, we're still in the early, early, early goings, you know, more than uh, three weeks from opening day at this point. Uh, but uh, a lot of things to talk about New York Mets, and I want to bring in our guest right away. He's a 
good friend of the show, good friend of mine, always great to talk to. He's the New York Bets beat reporter for 98.7 ESPN and Fios One, and now the, also the author of Press Box Revolution. Our good friend, Rich Catino. Rich, how are you today? Good. How are you doing today? Doing good. It is always a pleasure. It's really cool to kind of throw in the word author now, man. I really uh, I really uh, am looking forward to this book. I've had my pre-order in for a while and uh, I, was, I was saying earlier, just before you called in, that this is, this is a book I want to spend an entire show on here in the coming weeks and months here, and uh, I don't want to talk too, too deeply about it today, but let's get that preview, because I want people pre-ordering this thing, because I think it's going to be a special, awesome book. Talk a little bit about Pressbox Revolution. Well, it, it takes you through the last three decades of sports reporting, both in New York and to a certain extent for the national scene as well, and really how, how the business evolved. Um, thinking from my first years of reporting back when I was in Portland in 1982-83 in Sportphone, that was a company that you could actually call and get scores. This was pre-internet, pre-bottom line, uh, pre-based messaging, pre-texting. Thinking through my coverage of those mid-80s Mets, which I think really started to make coverage different in that you were covering the personal lives of players as well as what they did on the field. But also taking through some of the events of the last 30 years, including 9-11, the whole Piazza Clemens War in 2000, um, 1984, which was an incredible year in sports in this town, and then the Rangers would have got the next couple of finals. The World Series gets canceled because of a labor strife, and OJ, all in the same year. In fact, three of those things I kind of covered all on the same day, back when the Rangers uh, parade culminating with the next coverage of Game 5 of the NBA Finals and OJ in the middle of all of it. Everyone through my travels of that day and also that time, we're also going to talk a lot about how it's been talked about much in the media. And that woman in the locker room had it tough from the very beginning, and I'll take you through that track, as well as where I think racism is its ugly head in a lot of different ways, not only in how black players were covered in the mid-'80s, not just Daryl and Doc, but also working in Winfield on the other side of town, and how also the whole Hispanic culture was covered very differently in 2006 when most Mets was viewed as a negative term when I think it should have been a positive term. So we'll be taking you through all those things among the columns of the last 30 years, my favorite team and my favorite players to deal with, and it's going to be the track through all of that. And, uh, yeah, let's see here. I think uh, the f- fine folks at Blog Talk Reader are having a little technical difficulties. Can you hear me okay, Rich? Yes, I can. Okay, perfect. Uh, sometimes sometimes I have a little trouble hearing you. I can't tell if the listeners are having that problem too, but I don't think they are, so we'll keep going here. One of the things, uh, of course, obviously, let me just mention, too, that uh, you know the book's available for pre-order. Uh, Amazon's got it for pre-order. Barnes & Noble's got it for pre-order. Any other places that you want to let people know that they can pre-order the book at? Well, they can go to the Barnes & Noble bookstores. That's more convenient to them, but the easy questions. Um, obviously, baseball. So, um, all things uh, 
you know, as we sit here, of course, obviously you've, you've been on the beat now for over 30 years. And, um, you know, I, I think especially in this Internet era, perhaps more so than it was uh, in the 80s and in the 90s, um, the, um, the beat has become somewhat of a, a rotating circle. And not a lot of people, I would say, left on the beat that I would call a veteran. Another veteran of the Mets beat left uh, left recently for a job outside of reporting. Uh, and the question I have is, with all of the rotation, how, uh, with all of the changes, with all of the different things, how how, how does Rich Catino survive? Well, the reason I don't survive is that I follow the times. And the other thing that I always did was I created – diversity in, in myself. And by that I mean you know, the career of like a portfolio, financial portfolio, and you kind of make differences in it. I became very skilled in ad sales, TV and radio-wise. I managed groups that were beginning sales operations in various networks around the country. And I think that all exposed me to a lot of the things you'll see in the book on how the Internet didn't monetize to me that that's that's always been a refreshing breath of fresh air for me because it's you know I I certainly follow most of the beat reporters and I respect what they do and I like a lot of their writing uh, but uh, you know it's it's kind of nice to be able to to go and see something that's you know positive and you know I I try to be a positive fan and I think we try to be a positive influence on the show yeah there's things that make us angry there are things that uh, get us upset and things that disappoint us but uh I always try to look at the positive of the future and the, and what this could lead to, what it could, you know, what it could, uh, you know, what it could be. It's, I, you know, I always point out, it's like, you know, for, for every uh, Mike Hampton leaves town, there's a David Wright we draft. Um, and, you know, that's just a way of saying, because something bad at the moment is going down, um, you know, it doesn't mean that uh, that's the way it's always got to be and that, you know, there are positives that come out of negatives. Turning to the Mets, I just mentioned David Wright. Um, and this is a story I, I think I feel like as an optimistic fan, as someone who looks to the bright side of all things, this is getting to be a story that is getting pretty darn depressing. Um, and it's getting to be a story because we love David Wright so much because he has been the face of the Mets for over a decade. 
because many of us followed David Wright from when he was in A ball and after he was drafted, etc. Uh, the Met fan from Norfolk. It feels like we're getting to the end of the road. If it's hard not to be pessimistic about his future, Rich, do you have any hope you can offer a David Wright fan? Well, I think we just have to wait because the shoulder issue is something that can be corrected, but you wonder how much of that has been affected by previous ailments and how that's all connected. And to the best credit, they developed a roster which, if David Wright was playing 100 games, I would have the roster even better. But the fact that he's not starting to see an opening day doesn't kill this roster. And that was an intentional way of building this club. Now, that will be said, David's presence is important to this team. And the illustration that I'll give to it that I think best describes it is, and everyone knows how close I am with Jose Reyes. When David Wright was down, Jose's reaction was, oh, no, not, oh, I'm going to get more playing time. Oh, this is going to create an opportunity for me. And that's what you all you need to know about David Wright's impact on being around this team. And I think at some point he's going to have to contribute on the field, but I think his presence is important even beyond contributing on the field. And I don't know of one person in the clubhouse who has given me one inch of I've had enough of the right injuries. So I think you're patient with it. I didn't want him to split the season in April anyway. I thought bad weather in the Northeast would be bad for the things that were troubling him prior to the shoulder, things he was coming back from. So I think if you reset this again in April, you see where he is, and you don't count on it, but it's almost like if you have it, it's going to add depth to the infield. Um, I've known David since the first day he came to the Mets, and I know he bleeds orange and blue as much as I've ever seen wear the uniform. I also know what he means to this organization. I also know what he means to the sport of baseball, even beyond the network organization. So all of those things put together, I hold optimism that he will be back. He's never going to be the guy he was before. That's an unrealistic expectation. But I think you can see moments from Dave Wright when he gets back on this team, some of the one he gave you in game one of the NOTS a couple of years ago, when he got a big hit that extended a one lead to three nothing. I firmly believe that that could happen. I think it's going to take time and hard work, but I'm not ready to close the book on David Wright just yet. Now, I know you're heading down to spring training yourself here in about a week or so, but uh, from, from a distance here, what do you feel some of the big stories in spring training are so far? I mean, obviously we're early, we're still early running kind of get into the midway point so we can start to make some assessments. But uh, what do you think some of the big stories have been so far? First of all, the outfields. And, and go ahead and help they have and what they're going to do. I think sometimes the best trades you make in the sport are the ones you don't make. And I just have a feeling Jay Bruce is going to have a big year for this team. Now, that's going to make things a little interesting for Michael Conforto. Um, so what I basically would do is look at the Mets playing a seven-day week. And there's no day off. So, really, you got seven games, you got 21 outfield spots for those games. I would think Sethmus has six, Jay Bruce has six. So, that leaves you with nine for that last position. And over on the one day, Sethmus or Bruce don't play in the corner. To me, Conforto's play more than any of the three other outfielders. And I would put him in center field because I think he's a good enough athlete to get that done. I would play him four or five days a week there. And to me, Granderson and Lagarus are the ones that should have some roles for this team. I know a lot of people don't believe that's going to happen, and it may not. 
Because Granderson may be there on open day, maybe Porter will be a triple A. But I think it's going to be interesting to see how healthy Duda is, and then maybe there are games where Bruce is going to switch to first, and then you got that outfield position. You also want to get Juan Lagares in the lineup, at least defensively, against some left-handed pitching. So he's got a lot of things he's got to manage, Terry, but I think that's going to be real interesting to see how that occurs. I think the starting rotation is going to be fine. Um, everyone says to me, well, the, all these guys have to be healthy for the Mets. So that would be grand design if it happens. But I don't necessarily agree with that. I don't think you can have what you had last year. Almost half got decimated. But if one of these injured players has a tough time getting his feet on the ground until June, I don't think it's a terrible thing. With the depth they have in the organization, whether it be Gazelman, whether it be Lugo, whether it be Zach Wheeler coming back, you know, after spending some extended spring training time. So the starting pitching is great. Bullpen, I'm a little concerned about because a bullpen, you kind of have to fit the pieces into where they are. You don't know how long Fabinho will be suspended at this point. And I know the Addison Reed has not looked great spring training. I tend to not look at that so much as others do. Um, stats in spring training. I'll use an open storyline. Stats are like uh, the drunk and a lamp, much more for support than illumination. So, and Vince says it better than I can say it. But I do think the bullpen is something you want to look at. I do believe that the, the, the Salas and Levin's coming back help out a lot. I think Reed will be fine in the closing role for 30 to 40 games while the million serves suspension. Um, I think Josh Smoker could be a big, big addition in that bullpen as well. But I think where the pieces are all going to fit, where Hansel Rubles fits, I think that all has to be kind of figured out. And it's something that I think you still could use the first month of the season to figure out. Um, no one's going to have to decide all spring training. But that's one area I think the Mets have to kind of firm up because they do think a good bullpen, the Mets will have a good bullpen. And I think that would be the biggest difference between them and the Nationals and the reason why I'm picking the Mets to win the NL East over the Nationals. Because I think the Mets bullpen and their depth of their starters over 162 games will be far more than the Nationals bring to the table. But I do think the Nationals will be a playoff game as a wild card. You know, I think um, I think for me, it, look, looking at this team, and, and yeah, I, I agree with you completely. I, mean, I think the bullpen has been, at least for me, a mild concern throughout throughout spring training. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not concerned about a veteran like Addison Reed, but certainly, you know, more concerned about some of the younger arms trying to make the bullpen, and uh, you know, seeing that the you know right now it doesn't, at least it, on the surface, doesn't appear to be a lot of gas in the Gorzolani tank, so to speak. Uh, but uh, Josh Smoker, who you know, I admit I'm biased. I'm a Josh Smoker guy. I'm a, I'm a smoker backer. Uh, but uh, I have been really impressed with the numbers that he's put up in spring training. While they have a, you know, again, they they are essentially meaningless stats. It, it feels like to me he's making a very strong case to be a part of this bullpen coming out of, you know, coming out of Port St. Lucie. But uh, um, the one thing I think that as a Met fan that I, you know, in talking to other Met fans, it feels like. The overall um, feeling is, I think a lot of Met fans, uh, when they see some a little struggle here or a little struggle there, for the whether it be a Matt Harvey or or whatever, um, they forget we have depth now. This team has legitimate depth, both in the infield, outfield, and uh, throughout the throughout pitching can withstand an injury or two. This thing, this team can withstand a slump or two. I certainly agree, and when you look at the bullpen, and the reason I like Smoker like you do is I think he performed very big in September in big games against left-handed bats. And the thing about this division is 
This division is loaded with left-handed bats. So you only need two lefties in the bullpen because you may have two spins around that order before you get to your closer. And certainly with the Nationals, you have Murphy and Hart in the middle of that lineup. Certainly you have it with Freddie Freeman in the lineup with the Braves, and certainly have it with Elch in the lineup with the Marlins. So there is just left-handed bats everywhere in this division. You're playing 19 games against each of these teams in your division. I think you need the two left-handed arms in the bullpen, so I'd like to see Smoker in the team. As far as the other stuff, you know, I'm in the mid-50s, and I've seen tons of spring training. I go back to when the Mets were in St. Petersburg in spring training, and when they finished that up there last year, it was 87. And I remember watching Tom Steele in spring training as a fan. I remember watching Good and Ron Darling as an early reporter. And I don't know, maybe things have changed now, but to me, everyone looks at the Chugs gun. It's it's what everyone looks at the velocity. And there's one thing I remember Tom Steele always telling me when he was a broadcaster for the Mets and also for the Yankees. He just said he grips the most important thing a pitcher has is late movement on the ball. And that can mean late movement geographically or late movement velocity-wise. But a 98-mile-an-hour straight fastball is going to hit 198 miles an hour over the fence. And I bring that up because everyone's pointing to Matt Hardy's velocity. And it's certainly not where you want to be more 95, 96, and 92, 93. But the thing I like about what I've seen about Hardy so far is he's thrown those pitches, and he's getting moving on some of the nut basketball pitches, which I think is what made him a really good pitcher back in 2015. I didn't see that from the early stages of last season. So to me, I have a lot of confidence in Hardy. Now, you want people to stay healthy. The other thing I'll tell you is Jake DeGrom is late movement in spring training has been good from day one. And that's a great sign for the Mets because, to me, you know, the two-headed monster at the start of this rotation in Cinderella and Zagrom, I look around Major League Baseball, and i got to be honest with you, I don't see another one-two combination like that in the game. Uh, people may point to the Cubs. The Cubs certainly have a good one-two. I don't think it's as good as Cinderella and Zagrom. So now you're putting Harvey in that third spot. You're putting Matt in the fourth spot. You're putting probably a peak on the fifth spot, whether it be Gazelle, Lugo, or Wheeler, or a combination of three. This starting staff has a chance to not only be the best in baseball, but depth-wise, to be the best in baseball in the last 10, 15 years. And I really believe that. And that's why the Mets are a dangerous team. I was talking to a scout last week. I asked him, I said, if all these Mets pitchers can help you, do you think it's a big trouble for the National League? His answer to me was, I'll amend you by one word, Rich. It's big trouble for baseball. Forget about just the National League. It's big trouble for every team in baseball. And when you have pitchers like this, and when you have a sixth and seventh starter that you think could come in and if there's an injury and fill the rotation, I think this is, this is as good a rotation depth-wise as the best have had since the mid-'80s. And I think this has a chance to be an incredible year for this pitching staff. The one that's going to become a major story in baseball from opening day right through the end of the postseason. Yeah, I I agree with you completely. I I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I I you know, again, I try to control the optimism where I can, but th- this feels like a special year and the year we've been building for. Absolutely, I think one of the things that I did most to write about in the book was the resurgence. That's a whole chapter was devoted to that. And now this is so similar to what Frank Cashin did in the 80s, 
where you know, and Pitch made some mistakes. You know, that was Valentine for Jeff Reardon, and he got a lot of criticism for that. Just, you know, at Sandy Trinity Angel put it on for what he thought would help him in the bullpen. But one thing that Cash and Sandy have in common is they kept getting pitchers in acquisitions wherever they can. Look at it, that's, you know, they traded Lee Mazzilli, who at the time was a commodity because Lee was a former all-star, but he got Rondo and Montero and traded around, traded Walter for Hojo. So, really, for Lee Mazzilli, the Mets got Hojo and Rondo and the Ironies, they ended up having him on the 86 championship team anyway because he came over as a free agent in August of, of that year in 86. The most similar is how Stanley built this team, getting Zach Wheeler for college bump on I'll never forget the night he traded Ari Dickey for both Syndergaard and Arnaud. And Chance was telling me, we need to get Arnaud with Syndergaard is out now, Larceny. They told me that that night. But even more than that, it's not the development of these pitchers. Going down each spring training, seeing them develop, seeing them getting better year to year, the Mets have put a tremendous amount of dollars and commitment into the development of their minor league system. We've seen that with the pitchers, and we're starting to see it with hitters now. You're going to see it with the Dominic teams of the world. You're going to see it with Rosario's of the world. You're going to see it with all these people coming in. Even a guy like Brandon Zimmo, who came up last year, and really didn't play a lot, and maybe didn't show he could be an everyday outfielder, he showed he was kind of clutch when the next years in clutch spots. As Matt Reynolds showed them as well. As Ficini showed them as well. I think all of that is due to the development of the minor league system that this team has put together since Sandy took over. And I don't think Sandy is anywhere near him out of the credit for it. And I tell you, no, Sandy doesn't carry the credit for it. He just cares to win. And I think that's a big part of why this team has been successful in the last couple of years. You know, when you think about last year and think about all the injuries the Mets had, their entire red team was decimated. They lost successfully at a key time in the season. When him and Bruce have been able to play together a lot at that point, it was David Wright for a long stretch. It was Judah for a long stretch. It wasn't just the pitchers. They lost a lot of players. And they somehow kept their magic in that clubhouse and got to 87 wins. They didn't win the final game, and that was certainly disappointing. But to me, that doesn't take away everything that they accomplished to get there. And that tells you a little bit. The team has a lot of talent but it also has a lot of drive and desire. And I credit Terry Collins with a lot of that because he has learned that you can't make every player the same in baseball. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard anyone say. My man is everyone the same. No, some people need to take the butt. Some people need to put their arm around you. Some people need a little of both. And Terry is able to know which players need why, and that's why that has been effective. That's why they were able to accomplish what they were able to accomplish in a year last year with all the injuries. If they went 81 and 81, I don't think anyone would have said, well, that's a terrible season. They would have said the Mets had a lot of injuries. And they had a great August and September and gave their fans a lot of fun. It could have been more fun if they won the playoff game. But I think that, um, it's a tremendous accomplishment what they did, and it speaks to how much this organization does with helping players. I think it's better than anyone in the sport of baseball. Yeah, I mean, I certainly, I mean, with last year, it was a, it was a year, you know, as, you know, especially when we're hitting the middle of August, I'm, I'm pretty much uh, starting to make alternate plans for October to not be near a television set and, and to wind up where we did. 
I, however disappointing it was and to lose it the way we did, et cetera, uh, it, it's still, you're absolutely correct. It, it is 100% a victory they got that far with who they were playing with. And, it, and again, it's a testament to the depth that Sandy has put together on this team uh, that the team was able to get that far with that many people out, uh, both for the year and temporarily at that point. I mean, you just had so many people out that uh, to basically get, you know, get basically all, he, he nearly got to the, the you know, the, the, the uh, National League Division Series with the Las Vegas 51s. Really did. And, and Sandy, but also J.P. Ricciardi, a lot of credit. He, he's one of the nicest men I know that knows so much about baseball, and he's so egoless about what he knows. And he's willing to share with everybody. I can't tell you how many times J.P. and I have talked for 20, 25 minutes. We started the conversation talking about hockey because he loves the Bruins and I love the Rangers. But then it kind of develops into a baseball conversation. And I always learned something that I never knew before talking to J.P. I think he's one of the smartest men in the game, and I think he's a real underrated part of this organization. And everything that he's contributed to Sandy's decision-making and the development of players, I think J.P. Ricciardi is a big reason why the Mets are where they are right now. One of the things that I just want to bring, you know, we operate in a very different world now with Sandy than when Frank Cashin was was building this team back in the early 80s. And it's a joke I've made often, but, I, you know, being as you're someone who can put historical context on this, uh, I, I wanted to throw it by you. In the era that we live, of course, in, you know, with social media, the instant news cycle, uh, sports talk radio, all the things that didn't exist from when, you know, when, when Frank Cashin took over the, the, uh, the Mets to the point where WFAN signed on in, in 1987 or so, um, how, how quickly do you think the Mets fans would have tried to run him out in this day and age? I think they would have tried to run him out pretty quickly. We saw what they were trying to do to Sandy. And I think that, you know, when Frank came to the team, and this is where people have to remember it, I'll never forget when he was introduced to the media. He said, it's going to take some time. He said, but I'm hoping in four or five years from now, we're going to be a legitimate pack contender. When you think about it, he took over the team in 1980, and he was able to get the team into a 90 win season in 1984. So he was running hard with that. But during the early 80s, I think there was a lot of problems with it. You know, remember, not only did he bounce that trade, but he also reacquired Dave Keenan, and Dave was not a very pleasant person to be around in the clubhouse. But I think, much like the Syndicate trade, changed things, and, and somewhat the, the trade for Ron Darwin, but the trade that really got him on the map was the Keith Hernandez trade. And you know, there are people today that say, oh, my God, let's police the Cardinals, but they forget things. Neil Allen was a bona fide closer in those years. But the Mets had Jesse Roscoe, and they felt that looking at it, Roscoe was a better long-term closer than Neil Allen. They knew her natives was being cut by the Cardinals, so they went and made a deal. The following winter, they go and trade for Gary Carter, much like, you know, the whole Sepulchre thing. The Gary Carter thing kind of evolved and evolved and evolved over the winter. And in talking to Frank years later, he told me that, he gave a choice, you know, to the Expos, whether they wanted certain players. He said, he said you can have Herm Lingham, who was a big-time outfield prospect for the Mets at the time, right. or you can have Mookie. And they chose Herm Lingham, just like they chose Floyd Young and the other pitchers in the Mets organization. So I think that, you know, there are a lot of things that, that Frank did well also in promoting prospects that were top 
rank prospect in the organization, that he saw something that in his mind he weren't necessarily people that he could build his team around. David West being one of those guys, and they, and they used him in Frank Lyle's trade. So a lot of things that he did that are very similar to Sandy. In the real world, I don't know if it would have hurt Cashin as much, because Cashin didn't really care what people thought about him. And Sandy never much like that. The perceptions of people never bother Frank Cashin, and it doesn't bother Sandy, and I think it fits into the strength of what both of them able to do. In a very similar situation, and Davey and Terry Collins are very different managers, but I think both of them were picked, hand-picked by, by Frank Cash and Sandy Wilson because they saw something inside them. And both of them have been real-time, big-time winning managers, and I don't think that's a coincidence either. Both teams are able to see someone to lead them on the field that would bring that kind of ability into the dugout day in and day out. You know, one of the things I always kind of chuckled about is the idea that going into 1986, of course, the Mets needed a left-handed starter. They, they, it was definitely a need for them. And, uh, you know, Frank goes out and he gets a guy with basically a career five ERA in Bob Ojeda. And um, the, the reality of it is, obviously, he put in a Cy Young caliber season and, you know, was basically the ace of the staff for the 1986 Mets. And, uh, you know, I just imagine social media and sports talk radio, oh, I can't believe they brought in this loser. What was Cashin thinking? And, you know, it just kind of, it kind of cracks me up. It makes me chuckle because, you know, you just never know what the final piece is going to be. You know, people are you know, criticizing or whatnot. Hey, the final piece could have been Jay Bruce, guys. It could have been. You just don't know. Uh, but, uh, you very, know, very you think about it. Very true. And, and the thing about Ahita was, think about also bringing Tim Tuffle in. And oh, yeah. Before 86. Think about the big at bat in that game seven of the World Series where everyone talks about Keith Stewart's signals a huge hit. And he's the best clutch hit I ever saw in that uniform. But the walk Tuffle had in a very tough at bat prior to Keith's at bat is huge in that game. And I don't even further here. I think if he didn't get hurt in 88, the Mets won the gun the World Series because they missed him a lot in that NLCS with the Dodgers in 88. And it was an unfortunate incident that happened to him. I think the Mets really missed him. And I think um, I think if Bobby Lee was on the roster, I think the Mets might have won the 88 NLCS. And who knows how the history of that team would have been looked at. I have a big problem with that because you build a team to win a championship. They won a championship. They averaged 95 wins over a six-year period. They won 100 games in a season two years after they won the World Series. Um you know, the off-field stuff's been magnified, but to me, that team accomplished what it was supposed to. It got a world championship in New York. Could they have done more, maybe, in, in the present-day format? I know they definitely, in my mind, would have done more. They would have been the playoffs every year in the present-day format from 84 to 90. And yep. I think in some of those years, we might have seen the great Cardinal men at LCS to over the Yankees and Red Sox in the year when we had the wild card. So, Everything is timing, but I think that team accomplished exactly what it was set out to accomplish. I think the criticisms that they didn't um, just kind of make me laugh because I lived through it, and I know what they meant to this town, and I know they won a championship, and I don't think they get credit for it. They get discredit for not winning more than a championship, which I think is insane. 
You know, and I think I, I made, I've made that point several times, that exact point about the, the fact that the, this would have been a playoff team from 84 to 90 um, if the present day format existed. And I, I really believe that, you know, how I, I do think there would have at least been one more resulting world championship from that team. I believe they had it in them. I think they just needed their, to, to sneak their way in via wild card in, you know, in that scenario. But uh, I really believe that what the discussion will be today in New York, if that pro- format existed, was what was the better dynasty, the 84 to 90 Mets or the 96 to 2002 Yankees? I think that would be a legitimate conversation in New York. Well, not only that, but if you look at the flip side, let's say the Yankees had to live in the same area the Mets had with two divisions. Well, you got to put the 96 World Championship away because the Yankees would won the division. Yep. In 97, the same thing. The Yankees wouldn't even reach the playoffs until 98. Now, 98, they're a great team. They would have gone water to water. But I think they might have had problems with their one loss record in 2000 as well. So, I don't think it would have been the run that everyone thinks about. And, you know, the bottom line is that um, you can't change the timing of life. And this is not just a baseball lesson. It's a life lesson. Timing is everything in life. Sometimes the most talented people don't get positions because their timing is off. Sometimes the most talented politicians don't win races because their, talent, their timing is off as well. Um, it's part of life, but it's easy to dismiss the Mets as not being anywhere near what the Yankees were. When well, I think those dynasties were very similar, and had the scenario has been the same. I think you would have seen the Mets team in the 80s that's very similar with the Yankee team in the 90s. Maybe not with as much straight world championships, but I'm sure you said there might be another one in there. And I really think some of those NLCSs would have been off the charts, you know, mini-series, reality show type series because most organizations really hate each other. One of the questions uh, that has been popping up in the last days and uh, my last question for the day, you know, obviously we've got the World Baseball Classic going on right now, and a lot of people, it, it feels like this is the year that the WBC is kind of coming into its own, and it's becoming must-see baseball at this point. Uh, one of the big comments I'm hearing along the interwebs and various other places is, uh, why isn't Major League Baseball played with the emotional intensity of the WBC? I just kind of wanted to get your take on it. Obviously, it's 162 games compared to a short tournament, but it does seem like the emotions are riding a lot higher than anything that goes on throughout the Major League Baseball, save for the playoffs themselves. Well, I think part of it is you're dealing with countries that are all on the same page with the team. So you have more people rooting for individual teams in the tournament, and a lot of it is, is you know, people want to see their country come out lot best. And Go down to the Hispanic world as I'm in the off season and watch, you know, in Puerto Rico, in the Dominican Republic. These people are great, great baseball fans. And when baseball season ends for them, they don't go to soccer in some of these places, but they don't go to basketball or hockey or NFL football. They continue on with their love of baseball. And I think that's the thing that I think makes the WBC very special. Um, teams of the Orient, you know, and then you have newer teams like Israel doing a great job this year in terms of winning the game being exciting. So I think there's a lot of pride involved. And where I think fans understand that a season is 162 games, and in some ways they might care more about their fantasy team, the team to root for. But I do think the 
WBC has a place. Um, I get a little concerned when I see players that early in the year playing at the level they're playing at with a lot of mistakes and to see how it affects them. Um, I totally respect Boston Jones stands and not going because he knows where his, you know, where, where his future lies in the organization, so I understand it. But it is a passionate event. It is an event I love watching. Uh, I really think the country loyalty and pride really have more to do with the emotion of than anything else um, that's involved. So I, I think that's the stance I can. It's almost like an Olympic to the extent of you don't care where that further runner comes from. He's an American or she's an American, so you're going to root for them to win. It's like they live in your hometown. They could live in, you know, you know, they could live in Beaumont, Texas. You may never be in Beaumont, Texas your whole life. If you're an American, you know it's part of Beaumont, Texas, so you root for them. I think the WBC is a lot like that in terms of the heritage of the countries and the pride. And I think it's a great thing. I think these countries come out and watch their players and have a great time, and I think uh, the players giving back to the fans in those countries is also a great, great thing. So I'm a big believer in the WBC. Well, you head down to Port St. Lucie next week. I'm certainly looking forward to hearing what you have to say while you're down there. Uh, any particular stories you're planning to chase while you're there? Yeah, I, I want to talk to Travis Darno when I'm down there because I think I, I definitely have seen some changes in his stance when he holds his bat, but also the fact that he's using the whole field. And I think when I look at players like Conforto and Darno, they are players that can hit home runs, but they're players that can use the whole field. And I definitely see that. And I want to talk to Travis about everything he's done in the offseason. So that's a big one. I definitely want to talk to Jay Bruce because I think, I, I'll tell you right now, I'm going to make a bold prediction right now that Jay Bruce and Juan Cespedes will combine for 200 RBIs this year. Because I think that Bruce is going to really have a big time year. I think he's committed now. He knows he's here. Uh, anything happened, obviously, with trade, but I think he's, he's bought a place in New York. He's, he's totally going to, you know, immerse himself with New York City, and I think he's in the walk year of his contract, so I think that's going to promote him to have an even better year. And let's remember, this is the guy that was in the middle of the lineups in Cincinnati when they went to playoffs after playoffs. They never won a first-round series, but Jay Bruce was as big a part of that lineup as Joey Votto was or Brandon Phillips was. He was a core offensive bat. And that's what I think he'll be in this net line. So I'm looking forward to talking to him to see how things are going. And the other thing I'm looking forward to is leaving some of the snow behind in New York, which is supposed to come this week. So uh, that's always a pleasant uh, way to, to, to leave New York and go down to Port St. Lucie. Yeah, certainly. I, I did see the weather forecast for New York, and it was one of those times where I was like, okay, glad to be in Oregon this week, that's for sure. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Rich, it is always a pleasure to talk to you, my friend, both online and on, on here. And if people want to follow you and find you online, how do they do that? Uh, Catino9 is C-U-T-I-N-H-O number nine on Twitter. Um, and obviously, you can hear also read me on New York Sports Day, which is a website I'm working for this year, as well as 98.7 FM. So all of those places okay. are places that I will be on. Sweet New York Sports Day. And of course, the book comes out next month. It is Press Box Revolution How Sports Reporting Has Changed Over the Past 30 Years. It comes out the middle of next month. And, and Rich, like I said, I'd like to have you on for a whole show and, uh, coming up here uh, sometime after the book comes out. And let's let's uh, dig, dig deep into it. You got it. My pleasure. Have a great day. 
All right. Rich Catino joining us. Always a good time. Always appreciate the conversation. And uh, it's one of those things that I, the thing I love talking to Rich Catino is that, uh, you know, you're going to get a history lesson at some point and it's going to be cool. And even though, um, you know, he was, he was calling, you know, covering those games the same time I started watching them, uh, a lot of behind the scenes things that he saw that I never had any idea what was going on. Um, and really cool stuff. I always enjoy my conversations with Rich. I hope you do as well. That'll just about wrap things up for the happy recap this week. Uh, we, next week coming up, our good Mike friend Michael Barron will be joining us. He'll be talking about spring training so far, and also he's had the opportunity to check out more than a few ball games of the WBC in Miami. So we'll hear some reports there. Uh, certainly, if you're not following him at Michael G Barron on Twitter, uh, make sure you do. And uh, for his updates on both the Mets and on the WBC. And in two weeks, our good friend Greg Prince from Faith and Fear and Flushing will join us. Uh, we'll certainly look forward to the 2017 season, but he's got a brand new book as well. It's called Piazza, Catcher, Slugger, Icon, Star, uh, and that's out now. You can catch that at Amazon, um, same company actually that put out, uh, is putting out Rich's book. So you can just head to Amazon or Barnes & Noble and why, why just order them both? They're both great books. Um, I've been reading uh, Piazza through, and uh, that's, that's a great book, and I look forward to reading Rich Catino's book as well, and uh, certainly – the cool thing is when the Mets are good, you get a lot of goodies, and a lot of those goodies come in book form, and uh, we've, we've had quite a few of them. Uh, we had Matt Cerrone on a couple of weeks ago. He's got a book coming up uh, on the Met Bucket List. You've got uh, Greg Prince, who this is his, uh, I want to say his third book, um, and we'll harass him about part two of the second one uh, in there, uh, the happiest recap. Uh, still waiting on that volume, too, so we'll harass him uh, nicely about that as well. But, uh, you know, I want to check out his books. And, again, uh, our, our good friend Rich Catino, Press Box Revolution, comes out on April 18th. Head to barnesandnoble.com, your local Barnes & Noble store, or amazon.com. For those anywhere you typically will get a book, um, they should be able to pre-order it for you there. Uh, appreciate everybody uh, joining us today. Again, uh, next week, Michael Barron, the week after, Greg Prince. Until next week, we've got a lot of baseball going on and a lot of things to talk about. So let's go Mets.